All right, good morning. Welcome to Haven Ridge this morning. You know, I remember a time when we, we used to joke and say, well, we see who, who turned their clocks back and, you know, who didn't. And I, I almost posted last night on the app, don't forget to turn your clocks back. And I was like, well, wait a minute, most all that's automatic now. So the joke is lost. Anybody remember VCRs, you know? Yes. I remember hearing about those. <laughs> uh, well, store, save stories for later. <laughs> it is uh, it's a blessing to be here to worship with you this morning. Welcome to Haven Ridge. A um, couple announcements as we get started. Next Sunday evening um, will be our monthly women's meeting um, here 630, I, I believe. Is that that? I can't remember, is it 6.37 the ladies usually meet? I think 6.30 to 8. 6.30 to 8, okay, all right. Uh, but that will be next Sunday here at the church building. Um, the 28th, uh, we're going to have our, our uh, yearly Easter fellowship uh, at the Groves Farm. Um, that will be from 3.30 to 6 p.m. We'll be having a uh, children's egg hunt um, and hayride. Uh, and then we'll do a potluck meal as well. Um, bring food. There will be hand sanitizer at the beginning and the end of, uh, of the line, um, as well as disposable gloves. Uh, so we're going to try and keep everybody distance, you know, be as safe as possible. If you and your family would love to come, but you would rather bring your own prepackaged meal, certainly do that. That's, that's welcome. Um, but uh, otherwise, we just ask folks to bring, uh, bring, one, uh, bring one dish that's uh, big enough for your family plus one, uh, but that'll be uh, two Sundays, so that's the, the 28th, uh, 3.30 to 6 p.m. at the Groves, Groves Farm. Um, men are, uh, are, are, are gathering. We're, we're not going to meet this, uh, this, this month in lieu of the, uh, the fellowship that kind of lands around that same time, so um, you know, men, just come with your families. We're going to use that opportunity just for us to gather together, enjoy each other's company, to be an encouragement to one another. All right. Uh, also, rem uh, mark your calendars for April 25th. That begins our evangelism training. That will run for several weeks. Um, but uh, we've been talking about that for a while. That's going to be the start date for, uh, for the evangelism training is April 25th from 6 to 7 p.m. Uh, let's see, Alan, anything else? Yes, no? All right, as we do every week, just take a look around, see who's not here. Um, you know, whether you know why they're here or not, uh, just see who's, who's missing and reach out to them. Send them a message, send them a phone call, tell them that we miss them, um, and ask how you can pray for them, how you, you can be an encouragement to them today. Uh, also, just a reminder for our COVID policies, we don't require masks, but you're certainly welcome to, to wear them. But do just be respectful uh, of people around you. Try and keep your distance and uh, definitely make use of the uh, you know, nicer weather that we have. Um, after at the close of the service by uh, fellowshipping outside. If you use the restrooms, which are located behind the stage on either side, you or your children, please wipe down any of the surfaces that you uh, touch uh, as you come in and come out. All right, we're called to worship this morning. It comes from 1 Peter. I'm going to read this from 1 Peter 2.7, and I'm going to kind of back up because he talks about the precious gift that we're given 1 Peter 2, 7. This precious value then is for you who believe. So we gather as Christians. We gather and we worship him. We have a precious value. And he clarifies what that is uh, verses earlier. 
1 Peter 1.18, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things, like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for your sake who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Let's pray. Father God, we are easily enamored by all the things around us that glitter and sparkle and capture our attention. Fathers, we gather and we are at worship today. But may we be reminded of the immense preciousness of the blood of Christ. Blood of Jesus that redeems us, purchases us back, makes us right with you. And we have the blessing and the immense privilege of living this side of the cross, being able to see all of your promises fulfilled in Jesus, commissioned with the responsibility to tell this good news to others and to live out as new creatures in Christ holiness and righteousness and to do so humbly dependent on you in faith. So Father, as we gather this morning, would you wash over us? Would you prepare our hearts for worship? We worship you and reflect on the precious value that we have in Jesus. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Stand together, please. Almighty, the King of my heart. 
strength and majesty.
see kids you want to come up and join uh, Austin all right good morning how is everybody good good to see everybody this morning yeah all right we're gonna keep working through our our book, Big Truths for Young Hearts, right? Big, big ideas about who God is, right? And who we are made in His image and why Jesus came, why Jesus is important, okay? What it means to be saved, all right? So we've been talking about the work that Jesus has done, okay? And we're almost done. We're getting ready to talk about the Holy Spirit, okay? How many persons are in God? How many? Three. Ah, how many? How many? Three. Three. Name them. God the... God the Father, God the Son, and the, and the Holy Spirit. All right, so we've talked about God, and we, or we've talked about God the Father. We've talked about God the Son. Okay, we're going to talk about God the Holy Spirit here soon. But we got one more question before we leave this idea of Jesus' work and what he's done. Okay, and the question here for today is, is Jesus really the only Savior? Okay, that's the question. Is, is he really the only Savior? All right, how many of you like to go hiking or go for walks in the woods or, you know, in the park? Okay, all right, have you ever, who's been to Paris Mountain? Anybody been to Paris Mountain? Hiking at Paris Mountain? Okay, all right. Or maybe you've been hiking somewhere, all right, and there's a lot of trails that get you kind of to the top, okay? My family, we love to hike at Paris Mountain. There's a lot of trails there, and they all kind of go, and they connect, and you can pick one of them. And, you know, and most of them, they'll take you all the way up to the top or at least close to it. You know, a lot of people believe that the way to God is kind of like that. It's like there's a lot of trails that lead all the way up to God and God's up at the mountaintop. He's kind of made himself known to us in some way. Maybe he's a he, maybe he's a she. We don't really know. But as long as somebody's sincere in whatever they believe, they'll get to God. Okay, kind of like, you know, you just pick one of those paths and it'll get you there, okay? As long as you're walking, you know, it'll get you there, okay? And they'll say it's wrong for Christians to say that Jesus is the only way, okay? So we're going to ask that question this morning. Is Jesus really the only Savior? Is he the only way to God, okay? So knowing the things that we've talked about, about who God is, okay, and sin, how sin came into the world, and what happens to that image of God, and it breaks down because of sin and our sin nature and our need for a Savior, Okay, let's test this, and let's ask, does Jesus fit the qualifications for our, for our Savior? Okay, and then do, has anybody else fit those qualifications? Okay, so let's ask those questions. I'm going to take you through kind of five points real quick. Okay, all right? So, Jesus alone was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, right? At Christmas, this is what we celebrate, Jesus' birth. Okay, right? And the angel appeared to Mary... And said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you'll have a baby. Okay? All right, so God gave Mary the gift of a baby, okay, without a human father. Okay? And so this is important because Jesus didn't inherit a sin nature. Remember we talked about this like months ago. I know your memory is like spot on perfect. Okay, it's not cluttered with all the things that the adults are cluttered with. Okay? But I, just to refresh you, 
okay, that when, we, when we're born, we come into this world with a sin nature, right? That image of God is broken. Well, when Jesus was born, because he was born of that what we call an immaculate conception, that's a big, big term, okay? But he was born of the Holy Spirit, okay? He didn't, ha- he didn't inherit that sin nature. He was more like Adam, okay, who came into the world without that sin nature, okay? And this was important because he also had to be fully God, Okay, now that's our, second, that's our second point. Now let me ask this. Was anybody else in the history of the world born like that? No, no. Okay, so Jesus fits that qualification, number one. Okay, but Jesus was also God incarnate. Okay, we talked about how, that, how the debt of sin and how big that debt was and how, what it took to pay that penalty, to pay that sin debt. Okay, and we said that a person had to pay that debt. Right? Somebody who's a person. But the problem with all the other people is that they're broken and they're sinful. Okay? So the value of the debt had to be paid by somebody greater than just a, just a regular person who's broken and sinful too. God had to pay that debt. Okay? So this is where Jesus was both 100% man and 100% God. Okay, now, does, has anybody else in the history of the world ever fit that? Everybody, anybody else been 100% man, 100% God? No. Okay, so Jesus is fitting, he's fitting our bill on two of these qualifications. But we got a couple more. Okay? But Jesus also alone lived a sinless life. Okay? How many of you know in the Old Testament, have you heard of the sacrifices that were given in the Old Testament? I know when we were doing Sunday school, we talked about this, you know, or when we did kids' church, okay? The sacrifices. Did you know that one of the requirements for the sheep or the goat or the cow, what, you know, any of the animals that were sacrificed, they had to be perfect, spotless, no blemishes, okay? That was a testimony that said that whatever pays for the penalty of sin, it's got to be perfect, it's got to match God's holiness and perfection. Okay, so the, 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 our Savior, the one who would die for our sins, he had to be spotless. He had to be perfect. So not only did he have to come into the world, okay, and be born of the Virgin Mary, okay, and be spotless there and be God incarnate, he also had to live a perfect life. How many of you have lived a perfect life? That's good. We're catching on, Okay. All right, nobody, not even any moms and dads, grandparents, nobody in here has lived a perfect life, but Jesus did, okay? Now, has anybody in the history of the world lived a perfect life? No, but Jesus has. So he fits that that qualification of that spotless sacrifice, that spotless Savior, okay? We got two more, okay? Jesus also alone, he died as the substitutionary death and payment for the sins of others. Okay, remember we've, this is what we've talked about more recently. We're getting up a little closer to where, where, we, where we are now. Okay, Jesus died on the cross for what? For our sins, that's right. That's, and that's a big term, we call that substitutionary. Everybody say that, substitutionary. One more time, substitutionary. Okay, how many of you have been in school, okay, and your teacher gets sick and you have a substitute teacher, okay? Now, is that substitute teacher, is that person stands in the place of your regular teacher, right? Your regular teacher is not there. So the substitute comes in in your teacher's place, 
So Jesus was our substitute payment. Instead of us taking the payment, Jesus took it for us. Okay? Now, has anybody else in the history of the world died for, uh, as a substitute for everyone's sins? No. No. Only Jesus did. Right? He died the death in our place to pay the full penalty for our sin. Okay? So he is a value, okay? Because he's 100% God, 100% man, he's able, he's capable, he's, he, he can pay that penalty. But he voluntarily did. He said, I will take your place on the cross. But not only that, Jesus alone rose from the dead and triumphed over sin. Okay? Now, if you're thinking and you remember some stories from the Bible, has anybody else in the Bible, anybody else in the Bible raised from the dead? Um, that one dude. That one dude. <laughs> that one dude. Yeah, anybody help out. What's that one dude's name? J something. That starts with a la, ends in urus. Sounds like a dinosaur. Lazarus, right. Lazarus raised from the dead. Okay, and there were some, there were some other examples in Scripture. Okay. But do you know what? Let me ask you this. This is something Ellie, Ellie mentioned to me the, uh, the, uh, back a couple weeks ago. And I thought this was a good point. Le Jesus laid, raised Lazarus from the dead, right? Did Lazarus die again? Is Lazarus still alive today? No. 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 No, Lazarus is not. So Lazarus did die. He died again. He died twice. That's pretty crazy. When he died again, ask your daddy about that one. Okay? I'm not going to try and tackle that right now. Okay? But that's a good question. But here's the important thing. When Jesus rose from the grave, never to die again. Okay? And we've, we talked about this more recently. This was just a few weeks ago. Okay? Because Jesus died never to, or, or because he rose from the grave never to die again. He proclaimed victory over sin and over sin's greatest power, which was death. Okay? Right? So has anybody else in the history of the world rose from the dead never to die again, proclaiming that kind of victory over sin and death? No, no. So in all of these things, let me ask you this. So does Jesus fit that qualifica those qualifications for us for a Savior? Absolutely. Has anyone else in the history of the world met those qualifications? No. So here's the simple question. Is Jesus the only Savior? Yes. Jesus even said this himself in John 14, 6. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And Peter even backed this up, and he said this in Acts. He said that there is, in, there is salvation in no one else, and no, under, no other name under heaven among by which we may be saved. Okay? Think about this. Remember, we t I, I said at the beginning, gone for a hike you know, or, or walk. A lot of people believe God's up on top of this mountain, and as long as you're sincere, you know, any of those paths get there. You know the really, do you know the really sad truth? None of those paths get there. But you know the greatest gift and the wonder of the gospel? The gospel is not 
take this one path and you get up to God. The gospel is that God came down to you. Isn't that good news? All right, well, let me pray for us, okay? That is mind-blowing. That's crazy. All right, let's pray. Father God, Lord, may we never, never forget the treasure that we have in Jesus. That when Scripture says, and you give testimony, that Jesus is the only name under heaven by which anyone can be saved. That's not restrictive. That shouldn't be offensive to any of us. That's a gift because no one deserves that gift of salvation. And yet the gospel is that Jesus came to earth, met all of the qualifications needed to bring us back to you. And he's the one who brings us into your presence. And Father, through faith, we can have a relationship with you. We can be redeemed. We can be made new. All our past sins are forgiven, taken away. We're a new creation. Father, what a blessing it is to know Jesus. I pray for these young minds this morning, Father, that a seed of the gospel would plant in their hearts. Father, they would love Jesus. They would see their need for him, would know their own sin, and that Jesus is the only way for that sin to be forgiven that they would profess faith in him and they would walk in newness of life. Father, I pray for all the adult years who are here today. Father, if there's any that do not know Christ, they would seek him out. Father, you would stir their affections for Jesus. Father, draw them home through faith in Christ. It's in Jesus' precious name that I pray. Amen. All right, thank you guys. You can go sit down. Y'all don't get to see what we get to see, but the best seats in the house are right up here when the kids are up there because we can see their facial expressions. Uh, like, well, first of all, my son's disagreeing with me about Lazarus. Did Lazarus die again? Yes. Calvin's like, no, he didn't. So I'm we're, you know, he's having this debate with me in real time. So he'll be disciplined later, but um, <laughs> like church discipline. So, but then there's, you've, it was really funny because Ivy... You know, uh, the, Austin asked the question about did, did someone, uh, are any of you sinless or did any of you give your life and die for others? And it, one of those questions where nobody should raise their hand and Ivy's eyes are cutting back and forth just as easy. Somebody raising their hand. Uh, Austin asked them to sound out substitutionary and all of them are trying and Carson just locks down. <laughs> His eyebrows furrowed he's like, I'm not saying it. So strong willed child back there. So anyway, but it's, it's, it's. It's funny. So Ellie's laying down, volunteering his tribute with three fingers up here. It's, it's, it was, it's, it's always funny. Then when the pastor's kids speak, you're cringing a little bit because, like, what are you going to say? So uh, anyway, let's stand together. One, two, three, four, five, six. Oh, sure. Our sins.
You can turn in your copy of the scriptures to John chapter 21. Jake, you can probably dial me back just a little bit. John chapter 21, this is the last sermon in John's gospel. So this is two years and a week that, uh, that we've been in John. I was going to count how many sermons, but I know over six months ago, I had counted close to 40 that I had preached just by myself through this text. So it's a, it's a lot, you know. Um, so know this, you know, I don't, I don't know how you think about these things, but I counted a great privilege to be able to walk through an entire book of the Bible in an expository fashion. You know, I, I hope that you've really taken advantage of these two years to kind of gather a collected understanding and a full context of what happens in John's gospel. Because a lot of places that you go, expository preaching is not the way that it's, that it's done. So you have, you know, maybe a very biblical sermon. Maybe you have a sermon that's very exegetical, but maybe it doesn't consider the full biblical landscape, the full historical landscape. Not that we've done great jobs at that every time, but that's, that's the aim, is to do this, to provide for you a full context, a biblical landscape, so that you can work through these principles with a, with a, with a broader scope in mind. So I counted a great privilege to have been a part of preaching through John's gospel. I learned so much. Before I moved here uh, as a youth pastor, I was working through John's gospel, and I don't know how far I got. It wasn't very far. Uh, but I think at the beginning of this, I went back to some of those sermons thinking, I wonder if some of those sermons I could just, you know, it would just save me the time of, of, uh, of, of that work. You know, I know that sounds very lazy of me, and that happens from time to time. But two years ago, I was like, well, well maybe there's something there. And I found all of zero sermons that were, <laughs> that were worth grabbing and saying, all right, I'm going to preach this because it was good then. I thought it was good then. You know, maybe Tina heard it back then. Maybe Jake heard it back then. Maybe even Kelly heard it back then because she was a part of the youth group as well before she stole Jake from me. But I'm, that's another story, and I'm not bitter. Uh, and so, so, you know, maybe those things. But going back, I'm like, first of all, it was all shorthand. I didn't understand a word of what I was saying. You know, everything was misspelt, which is pretty typical for me. And it was just a, it, it was a hodgepodge. So I was like, all right, got to gotta really earn it. Got to really, you know, uh, have some good practice here. So it's been so rewarding for me. Um, and they're all recorded with the exception of maybe a few that we didn't re-record. Something happened. So uh, if you're ever just wanting to catch us, catch up on some things or fill in some gaps, they're there for you. That's both for online listeners and those that are in here as well. So we're going to finish things up today. I just couldn't, I just couldn't sign off on John's gospel without giving some attention to a few things that happen here in this, in this last text, okay? Um, this is not necessarily a good thing about me, but I'm a preacher that can say something about anything. The bad thing is sometimes nothing needs to be said, but I'll find something to say. So it's, you've you got to be careful with all of that. So I think there is something to be said here that I want us to investigate as our final sermon in the book of John. Now, maybe you're wondering what's next. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I have some desires uh, as far as things that I would like to preach on just to encourage the church. And I'm going to talk to Austin about some of those things. He might have some on his heart and on his mind. We have this opportunity, this window, before we get back into another book to really capitalize and say, what are some issues that we really think could encourage the body, you know, and bolster faith and all of these things. So we're going to we're going to get into that. I know we've talked about our marriage series, but there's still a few things burning in me that I want to that I want to unpack from the scriptures before we even get into that, which won't be a super long series, but I think a helpful series. And then we'll get into another book of the Bible. 
do not ask me about Revelation. Not going to happen, okay? Talk to Matt or one of those post-meal guys. They've got all kinds of things in their brains, you know, and so uh, not me. <laughs> um, I am such a, such a, 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 a young student of that, that book, uh, and I appreciate so many of those men and women who, who, who labor to wrestle through those very, very complex things, at least to me. So anyway, John 21, I've given you sufficient time to turn there or scroll there. Here we are, John chapter 21. I'm going to reread verses 15, and then I'm going to come all the way down to 25. What I'm going to do today, I'm going to uh, go back to a few places that Austin mentioned his, in his sermon, just a few more things that I would like to unpack that, that, that I saw, uh, and then move on through here. So I agree with everything that Austin had to say last week. There are a few things that are burning in me that I want to, to, to chase down just a little bit. So here we are. A familiar text, Jesus and Peter, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, then feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. So he said to him, feed or tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young and used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hand and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. So Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved. We presume that to be John. We've talked about that before. The disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also leaned back against Jesus, him, during the supper and said to him, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die, yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it was his will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now there are, other, there are also many other things that Jesus did were every one of them to be written. I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So really kind of a neat ending to, to, to that. It's, the ending of this is interesting because you have this pinnacle, this crescendo, this climax with the resurrection. But then you have this, I don't know if you call it an addendum, you have this extra length of tape where it's recorded that Jesus reinstates Peter. And we've kind of talked through that, and we see how that's encouraging, and that the, that the gospel writers, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, would see fit to add that, I think, for our encouragement, and just to show the grace of Jesus, and to kind of put a book into this, this uh, seeming debacle that was representative of Peter's life at times. And so now we have this last little section, where some interesting things happen. Jesus rebukes Peter one more time. And then gives him his final exhortation to follow him. So that's my objective today, is to see and, under, and understand the expectations of what it is to follow Christ. 
because that's how he ends the book. Follow me. I mean, simple yet profound. This is how he concludes the gospel. Follow me. And I don't want to be too simplistic with that. So in an effort to avoid simplicity and grossly and misappropriately generalizing that statement, I want to kind of get into that a little bit. So here's what happens. Let me offer you a little bit of commentary as I understand these things. Jesus has reinstated Peter. Now Peter has concerned himself, and Austin mentioned some of this, he has concerned himself not with the command that Jesus gave him, but he has concerned himself with what's going to happen to John. I think the relationship between John and Peter was an effectual one. I think they were close friends, brothers in Christ. I think there was a, 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 a real phileo, real brotherly love that existed between the two of them. You'll remember right after the resurrection, all the disciples are away except Peter and John. Well, they're all away, but Peter and John are together. You know, I think they spent time together. I think they were close friends I think they had affections for one another, and I think that when Peter is told, this is how you're going to die, he's concerned, well, what about, what about John? I, I, I don't think, as far as I understand and through research studies, I don't think this is Peter being jealous. I don't think, well, what about him? What's, when's he going to die? You know, if I've got to die, doesn't he have to die? I think, it's a, I think it's a compassion. I think it's a concern that says, well, what about John? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to die, and I'm, I'm okay with that, but what about him? What's going to happen there? Maybe, maybe is John going to glorify you in his death as well? I think there's a sincerity in his questioning of this, but Jesus wasn't having it. Jesus rebukes Peter as a response. He says, what is it your business if it's my will to keep him around? You follow me. So there's a directive that comes with this admonishment or this, this there's an exhortation and a directive that comes with this admonishment Peter stop worrying about all these other things Peter you need to stay focused on what it is to follow me because what Peter has been given what we have been given and what the disciples were given is a tall order because following Jesus is more than your Christian t-shirts right it's more than youth retreats following Jesus is 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 more than Christian clicheism following Jesus is is a life. It is a call to not only live, but it's a call to also die. So we can't be flippant or trivial about this idea of following Jesus. All of us would probably raise our hand and say, I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm a follower of Jesus. But let's be sober enough to ask ourselves and rightly answer the same question we're asking ourselves. Do I follow according to the quality, the command, and the caliber that is expected of me. And I would say, no, no one does. But it doesn't minimize or reduce the expectation. So if the expectation is there, we have to take that seriously. We can't just say, you know what, I can't follow to that degree because I'm not Jesus. So therefore, I'm off the hook. That's sinful. That's wrong. You know, there is humility that says, I can't be perfect because I'm not perfect, because I'm not Jesus. So I will fall, for all have sinned and fall short. Continuous action. I fall short. I'm going to fall short. But it's better to fall short climbing up than it is to come down, because when you're coming down your momentum, when you fall, and it just takes you the rest of the way, right? So there's, a, there's an illustration there so that we can understand. So this is what happens. I think Peter is rebuked here again. <laughs> Don't worry about all these other things. 
Austin talked some about distractions last week. We're going to get into that in a minute. So here's kind of how I've broken this up today. I want to emphasize for a moment this idea that Jesus is calling Peter to love him. And the evidence of that is in his following him. This is a common theme or a common thread woven through the fabric of, of Scripture. Just not long before this, Jesus says to the disciples in John 15, 14, or 14, 15, 14, 14, 15, I think. He says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Jesus says, here's the litmus test. The litmus test is what you do. It's not just what you say. It's what you're doing. I'm a follower of Jesus. Okay, are you a hearer or a doer or a hearer only. I mean, this is, this, is, this is the theme of Scripture. You do. You have to act. You have to move. You have to be as a follower of Christ and someone who loves Christ. And I think it's interesting. This is why I wanted to go back to this exchange between Christ and Peter. Because he asks him three times, do you love me? Frustrates Peter, right? Well, you know that I do. Why do you keep asking me that? You know, on top of all the things that Austin mentioned, I would add one more thing to that. I think there's an emphasis here on, on, on the relationship that cannot be divorced between love and action. If you love me, what? Tend my sheep. If you love me, what? Feed my sheep. He says, if you love me, here's the evidence. It's not in your saying, but it's in your doing. And we've preached on these things because this is all throughout the Gospel of John. Now, we're going to get further into some of the mechanics of this in a minute. But indulge me for just a second. This is low-hanging fruit, you know, getting warmed up, about to kind of take off a little bit. So let me talk for just a second on this relationship between love and action because I'm arguing that the capstone of this conversation at a breakfast charcoal fire with fish is Jesus saying, do you love me? Do this. You love me? Do this. You love me? Do this. And finally he says, follow me. If you love me, ultimately, you will follow me. And following Jesus is all-encompassing. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's following not only the idea of, ideas of Christ. It's not just Christ's ideologies, but it's also his methodologies. It's all-encompassing. It, it covers not just the red-letter edition of Christ's life, but I believe that it covers the totality of Christ's existence as we see in the Scriptures. Because we do realize that Jesus was pre-incarnate. So he had an existence. He had thought and will and action and love and hate and favor and preference and perfection. He had all these things eternity, from eternity past. And he's not changed. That's called the immutability of Jesus. He's unchanging. So we don't just follow a Christ that was born and had a ministry for three years, and that's all we have to work with. As far as the Bible's concerned, we have thousands of years to work with. And I'll get into that more in just a second. So the planes left the runway. Now we're starting to get up there a little bit. Here we go. So let me talk to you about this love relationship. He says to follow me. Again, if you love me, you'll follow me ultimately. You love me, tend my, uh, my lambs. If you love me, feed my sheep. If you love me, keep my commandments. This is how, uh, this is how the world will know that you belong to me by the way you love one another. And the the idea there is there how you one another, how you serve, how you love. This is the same exhortation that's given to the church when you read one anothering language through the Gospels. This one anothering language includes exhortation 
admonishment, encouragement, uh, uh, teaching, uh, all of these things. These are all actions. These are all verbs. These are things that we do amongst one another as we love one another. So love is an interesting topic. If you ask people, you know, what love is, I mean, there, I mean, books, songs, movies, you know, entire lives are built on this. People who are hopeless romantics, they think on love all the time. You know, they want to be in love. You know, it's like better to have, you know, not, well, I'm not making light of this statement, but you understand the statement, better to have loved and lost than to have never loved at all. We understand that, you know. So the idea is that it's, it's love is much better than to not love at all. You know, our culture even though it's wrong in so many ways, our culture is fixated on love. That's why we have movies about it. That's why Hollywood is so driven, you know, and, 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 it, and its theology, albeit very, very wrong, and it tries to teach you what love really is. But the problem is this love is rooted in a more Greco-Roman understanding of love. So let me just throw this at you. If someone ever asks you what is love, where you have to start is God. Because God has already said, I am love. Or the Bible says God is love. So that's where we start. How do we go from God is love, eternity past, so nothing informed him, nothing shaped who he is. He doesn't change. So he's always been love. So we start from there. Okay, God is love. Well, how do I work all that out in my brain? It's not super easy, at least to my mind. But that's where you start. Okay, God is love. Okay, then it's not reduced to sensuality because that's not God. You know, you can be loving and yet administer justice because there's those that would say, that's not loving. You can be loving and offer admonishment. You can be loving and discipline. You can be loving and come down on people. More, more on that later because God does these things. God dispenses his wrath, but yet God is love. You have to reconcile these things. You can't be led or fed by emotion. The Bible lays it out. God is love. Okay, let's, let's start with what is clear. God says it. God is love. That's my root. That's where I'm going. So the love that we have has to be modeled after not just who he is, but what he does. Who Jesus is and what Jesus does. Greco-Roman love, I heard a preacher once upon a time say, and I've said this for years because I loved, I loved his teaching on it. He talked about Greco-Roman love, and he says that, you know, in the Greco-Roman idea of love, and we've adopted this wholesale, by the way, that it's, that it's an uncontrollable force, that it's capricious in the sense that it's here today, maybe it's gone tomorrow. And that's what we understand of love. People fall into love, people fall out of love. You've heard this all your life. You grew up in grade school. I grew up in grade school. Man, every little girlfriend I had, I told everybody, that's my wife. I love her. I love her. What's her last name? I can't remember, but I love her, right? Didn't know anything about her, but I love her. I felt I've fallen in love. And I know that some people in here even think, well, you fall in love. You know, I, I get the idea that you have emotions and affections that are really beyond your control. You can't control who you're attracted to. You, know, uh, uh, you, can't, you can't you know, control uh, emotions or feelings that come up. You can control what you do about them. But these, to some degree, are an uncontrollable force. You feel how you feel. My wife and I have this conversation all the time. I'm like, why do you feel that way? She's like, I can't help it. I just feel this way. 
I'm like, it makes no sense. That's because you're a man, you know, and that's what we go through. So I get it. I get it. Sometimes you just can't control these things. And that's an adopted view of love that is not rooted in God. Because guess what? God is not. God is not out of control. God is not capricious. God is not something that you can count on or someone you can count on today, but who knows if you can count on him tomorrow. If that's the fact, if we say, you know what, I'm adopting this Greco-Roman idea of love, the problem then becomes, what does it mean when God says he loves us? If I'm using that lens, I have to believe, if I'm going to be consistent, that God loves me today, and I'm happy about that, but he might not love me tomorrow because he's capricious, because he doesn't have control. Biblical love is that God is love. Therefore, we do all things in accordance with God's word and for God's glory. And we see that all that God does because he is love is rooted in his love. And I'll explain that very quickly what I mean. You think, how in the world does he dispense wrath and that's rooted in love? You're thinking of love as it's dispensed on the object of his wrath. No. God's first and greatest and dearest love is for his glory. And so all things that he does is out of a perfect, robust, infinite, and eternal love for himself. All right? I told you, we're, 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 now we're in the clouds talking about some interesting things with the idea of God's love. This is how justice can be loving because God dispenses justice because of his love for perfection, his love for his justice, his love for what is right, his love for what is true. Correction can be loving because God disciplines and corrects. Why? Because he loves you. If you're his child and he brings boils onto your skin to teach you a lesson and you say, how is that love? It's first a love for his glory, but it's also to teach you, to teach you to not succumb to your own unbelief, but to trust if, if, if he's bringing uh, discipline on you for that reason. There's sometimes where people have issues in their life and we don't want to say, hey, it's that's God's discipline or judgment. You know, in, in the book of John, you have the, the, the man that was born blind, and the disciples are asking, well, well, is this because he had sinned or his parents? Neither. Neither. It's but that God might display his, his power. Sometimes it's that, you know. Being a follower of Jesus cannot be summed up or fully expressed with warm feelings and emotionally provocative Christian movies. Christianity is not summed up by emotion. It's not summed up by those things. It's something deeper. It's something richer. It's something fuller. Following Christ cannot be summed up by our love for Christian movies. I watch Courageous three times a week. I'm a follower of Jesus. You know, I mean, what? You know, I have a pick on my guitar. It says, pick Jesus. I'm a follower of Jesus. You know, I jump on Every marketing scheme that I can to show people that I follow Jesus. Am I saying that a follower of Jesus doesn't have a pick Jesus pick? Am I saying that a follower of Jesus doesn't like the movie Courageous or doesn't have a Christian t-shirt? You know, absolutely not. Those things are, to a degree, okay. But when we get into a conversation about marketing Jesus, and there's some problems I have there. But either way, you can be a Christian and love these things, but we can't reduce it to just that. And you see kind of where this is going because that is an issue, I think, at some point all of us have. I'm a follower of Jesus, but our following is maybe not on par with the expectation. 
maybe our following is good for us as long as it's in the context of convenience, comfort, and safety. You know, I've been there, good gracious. I don't want to go to jail. <laughs> I, don't, I don't necessarily want a prison ministry. I mean, you know, I don't necessarily want that, you know. I mean, I'm lifting weights now, so nobody's going to mess with me, that's for sure. But, you know, <laughs> that's not in my notes, I'm sorry. All right, back to the notes. So, all that God does is rooted in love. I've told you that. So our idea and appropriation of love must be modeled after God. We do what we do for the glory of God, for the honor of God. I mean, we want to love others rightly. Right? I mean, th- here, here again, this is it. He's saying, if you love me, feed my lambs. If you love me, tend my sheep. If you love me, essentially follow me. Do you really love me? I mean, Jesus labors this point with Peter. It, it has to be a very specific type of love. It can't be, you know, a... a, a a 30% kind of love, it can't be a, well, you know, I love you, you know. Yeah, yeah. have you ever used that phrase when you're, when you're young, you know, and you say to somebody, I love you, and the tag behind that is in God's way? You ever said that as a, as a kid? I love you in God's way. It's a backhanded compliment. I mean, it is. It's like, look, you're a troll, but I love you in God's way, you know. I, I, I'll deal with you. I don't want to really hang around you. I love you in God's way. It's right up there with bless their heart. We say that, you know, so that we can deliver this decisive verbal blow bless their heart you know i wish they were dead you know i mean we do that and that's not that's not that's not what god's after here that's not the kind of love that he's after he wants a very sincere love a love that demands following him and following him demands denying of oneself and following him is much more deeply entrenched than what we allow ourselves me included to get away with sometimes Who among us doesn't want to love rightly, doesn't want to be loved rightly? Who among us wants to be guilty of forsaking the first and second greatest commandment? You know, love the Lord your God and and, and love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, Jesus himself, this is the first and second greatest commandment. And they both have to do with love. So we want to get love right. Because to love rightly is to follow fully. Love is foundational to Christianity. It should come as no surprise that love is misunderstood and therefore grossly misappropriated in our world today. But how can the world know what real love looks like? It has to be by our faithfulness in following Jesus. They don't understand it, but their darkened understanding or their misunderstanding does not alleviate us of the responsibility of rightly loving because it's easy to do that. You're, 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 somebody spits in your face, whether it's metaphorically or physically, literally. It's easy to say, <laughs> I'm going to withhold my love. But we don't have that option. Because you can't love and follow Jesus fully without loving others. I mean, what does Jesus say? Feed my sheep tend my sheep. I mean, that's, he's saying he's want love them, love them rightly. The fall, the, the, the call to follow Jesus is the call to embrace and emulate his ideologies and his methodologies. In other words, 
We're to be like Jesus in how we think and what we do. Now, you might say to me, but Alan, no one is Jesus. His, his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. All of these things that Isaiah covers. And to a degree, you are right. But on the other hand, we are already told that we have the mind of Christ. Given to us by the Holy Spirit. Listen to what Paul writes to this church in Corinth. He says, listen, these things, this is 1 Corinthians 2, 10 through 16, if you want the reference. He said, listen, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that man which is in him? And it sounds like he's going the way of, okay, you you don't know anything. You know, only only the Spirit knows because the Spirit is God and he searches the mind of God. And then he says this. So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now, we have received what? The Spirit. uh, Now, we have received not, sorry, the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God. That we might understand the things freely given us by God. It, It continues. We are, and we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept these things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And listen to this. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one, for who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? And then he says, but we have the mind of Christ. To follow Christ rightly, again, that's how he finishes this. To follow Christ requires that we have the mind of Christ. I'm not saying we are Christ. I'm not in any way comparing us to Christ. I'm saying that the scripture says we have the mind of Christ. And what that means is that we understand through the spirit, this is Paul's argument, you know what the plan and the purpose as it's revealed in the scriptures regarding Christ's incarnation. You know what he came to do. You know his purpose. We've been taught it through the scriptures. We've had thousands of years to mull this over. Well, we've all had what, you know, somewhere between you know, 20 and, you know, uh, how old's the oldest person in here? 37. So, yeah, we've had those, those years, right? I'm careful. I'm good, right? So we've had, we've had time to, to, to process and reconcile these things. And the Holy Spirit, for those who are in Christ, you know, helps us to understand and see these things. So we do have the mind of Christ, So that when we act in accordance with what Christ wants, with what he does, then we're acting out what we have as the mind of Jesus. Having the mind of Christ means that we, because of the Holy Spirit, can see and live the truth of God's word. Holy Spirit makes these things known to us. So yes, you have the mind of Christ. You are not Christ. You have the mind of Christ as you've been privied to what his intentions have been. You've been privy to what his purposes are are and were and we emulate those the best that we can because things that were a mystery have now been revealed and there are still things that are a mystery no doubt having the mind of christ extends beyond the red letters of your bible remember the triune god here we go let's let's go a little bit a little bit higher into the clouds the triune god is one in purpose They are completely and eternally unified in all things. Now, granted, I understand Jesus took on flesh, became a slave, emptied himself of the exercise of his divine attributes, not his divinity. So there's a difference there. But as far as quality, as far as who they are, 
they are the same. I mean, this is what the author of Hebrews argues for in making an argument for the deity of Jesus. What the Father hates, the Son also hates, by the way. What the Father loves, the Son also loves, because they're one. There's never this debacle amongst the Trinity. They never have to come to the, to the, you know, to, to the green room and sit around and discuss, okay, we need to come to an understanding. You know, uh, you, you want it this way, I just disagree. I don't think it's the best way. This doesn't happen within the Trinitarian relationship. It doesn't happen. That's not how those mechanics work. They're perfectly unified. It's something that you and I can't reconcile with in our own brains because we're not perfect. We're not one like the Holy Spirit. God the Father and God the Son are one. There's never consternation. There's never debacle. There's never confusion between them. But they're in absolute harmony with one another. And so we think of that reality and apply it or see our lives through the lenses of that with regard to the mind of Christ. And these are some of the things that we come up with. Let me ask you this. If I were to ask you, and I kind of opened with this, if I were to ask you, where you would get your information. If I were to ask you, who is Jesus? Everything you could tell me about Jesus. I would say, tell me everything you know, and then tell me where you get your information. Probably before 15 minutes ago, most of us would, would, would start in Matthew. You know, I, I mean, I, I might be wrong. <laughs> I might be absolutely wrong, and y'all are thinking, well, <laughs> in the beginning, God created, you know, and great, because that's where you should start. With what you know. And this is important for you, and here's why. Because there's a world now, a postmodern, secularist, secularist uh, uh, world that is flipping everything on its head, and they're saying, Jesus didn't teach on that, so it's not wrong. But Jesus didn't even mention homosexuality, so therefore, it's wrong. Forget the fact that God says a lot about things. Forget the fact that, that uh, the biblical authors, out, uh, other than Jesus, say all kinds of stuff like, no, 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 that doesn't matter. Those things don't matter. The 40-something authors don't count. They don't count. Even if they're under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they don't count. There's a major, major consistency battle. And it, and it is almost rooted in a misunderstanding of the Trinity because if you're going to discount all these other authors then you're discounting the Holy Spirit's inspiration of these authors, which means you don't understand that the Holy Spirit is just as much God as God the Father and God the Son. And so what the Holy Spirit inspires is God himself, the Trinity, inspiring. And by the way, Jesus sides with it all. There's some tough things to reconcile in the Scriptures. If your kid's out of control, take him to the priest and have him stoned. Jesus didn't sit back and say, I don't like that one. I don't like that one. Jesus said, amen. You know, that's, and I'm not even going to begin to try to work through that right now with you all. I know it's difficult. There are answers. It's just not, nothing I can summarize in, in, in two statements, right? There are answers. So, you know, come back. Maybe one year we'll get to that, right? So Jesus didn't sit back there saying, all right, I can get behind that. And then other times... You know, you go, you, you're on your own on that one. 
Where was Jesus when Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed? Where was Jesus? He wasn't praying against the mighty hand of God the Father. He was as much a part of the desolation or the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah as God the Father was because they're unified perfectly. Where was Jesus and what was his thought processes when God said, I'm tired of sin, I'm going to flood the world. And everybody going to die except these few. Where was Jesus? Was he protesting? Was he saying, I love you, man, and most of the time we're in agreement, but you're riding solo? No, no. In action and thought, Jesus was 100% there with the Holy Spirit and God the Father. 100%. All the teachings, everything. Everything from homosexuality to homemaking, Jesus agreed with every single thing. Everything. But we want to say, well, that was God of the Old Testament. Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. I'm talking to you like you're guilty of these things, and I, you're not. Uh, I get frustrated because I hear these things all the time, you know, and, and um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's grievous. Where was Jesus when God's judgment was dispensed onto Egypt? When all those firstborns were annihilated. But Jesus is loving and Jesus is about compassion. You know, Jesus wouldn't harm anybody. I mean, Jesus was like a lamb silent before his shears. Jesus was just as responsible for the slaughter of the firstborn as just one of the plagues on Egypt. And yet, there is no darkness in him. Having the right mind, if we get back to this mind of mind of Christ, having the right mind necessarily leads to having the right method. Right thinking leads to right doing. Let me get to this, and then we'll we'll we'll, we'll, we'll get we'll start bringing it in for landing. Behavior is a byproduct of the mind, and when I say mind, I mean mind heart, right? Be transformed in the renewing of your mind. James addresses this very issue. And I'm talking about having the mind of Christ. If you're going to follow Jesus, you have to follow him in his ideology. You have to follow him in his, in, in his methodology. It's not half doing it. It's not 20%, not 30%. But it's embracing what he thought and what he did wholesale. And we're not going to, ma- we're not going to match up to that, right? I know that. But that's the aim. That's the goal. That's the work. And the harder we chase after that, the more like Christ we are and the more we glorify God, which is the, the reason for all these things. James deals with this issue. He talks to this church, these people. He says, listen, what's the reason for the fighting and the quarreling among you? He said, it's because you desire and you don't get, so you murder. He says, there's these passions that are displaced, these desires that are within you that are displaced. You're not thinking rightly. You're thinking on your idols and therefore what is born out of bad thinking is bad action. And that's what James deals with in these people uh, in in James chapter 4. We sin because we are operating within our own minds instead of the mind of Christ. This is why emphasis is placed on being renewed and transformed in the mind. The mind of Christ, and here's how some of this applies, okay? The mind of Christ, we have to have a mind of Christ towards our enemies, so many that are so faithful to go out to the abortion clinic. 
And they're standing in the face of those who, whether it's through bullhorns or signs or uh, violence or whatever, they stand there attempting to be respectful and peaceable, but at the same time wielding the sword, knowing that it's the only thing that can cut deep enough to cause change. But they also have to keep in mind, because this is the mind of Christ, that my war, although I am in a war, is not against flesh and blood. Because that's the mind of Christ. That's the mind of Christ. The mind of Christ, that's the mind of Christ towards our enemy. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. There's a, uh, I, I don't have time to explain it all, but there's a beautiful documentary that some of us have seen because I posted it on, uh, on, on, on the Haven Ridge Facebook and I think on mine of, of Nina's Deli in Chicago that before all the, uh, all the Black Lives Matter uh, protests and looting and riots and all that ensued at, at, at great lengths in Chicago, Nina's Deli, uh, a, a group of Christian people who were Latino were uh, singled out by BLM saying, hey, you know, you're a minority, we need your support. This is, this is a world-known deli. Greatest Yelp reviews in history. They just made sandwiches. And BLM targeted them and said, hey, you can be a voice for us, you need to put this sign in there. Black Fist, put your sign, in the, put your sign there and support us, or you need to give to us. They said, no, we think all lives matter. That's what they said. These are not super educated folks. These aren't, you know, world-class theologians. They said, we just, we love everybody. They wasn't trying to make some statement. They wasn't trying to say, well, I'll show you this. I'll respond by this. No, they were just, we, we think everybody is an image bearer of God. They were not having that. And the documentary is called Paint the Wall Black. So how BLM responded was with intimidation, bullying, and violence. Shutting down not just Nina's Deli because they wouldn't support the organization. Then they went on to shut down all kinds of people because they wouldn't support the organization. But we don't wrestle with flesh and blood. We wrestle with the enemy of this world, the prince of the power of the air. What about the mind of Christ towards sin? We should be grieved and hating of our own sin. And desirous to kill that sin, to mortify that sin, to use some archaic language. What about the mind of Christ? It leads us to exemplify the characteristics of Jesus. It does lead us to compassion for one another. It leads us to patience, to reliance on the Father. We see that with Jesus. The mind of Christ leads us to humility, love, etc. And these things are great. And for some of you, this is where you shine so much. So many of you in this room are so great with compassion. I'm great with humility, but you're great with compassion. You know, you're great with loving others. You're great with, 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 with encouragement. I mean, the giftings that are woven through this church are, are, are mind-blowing. To be as small as we are, to see some of these things is, 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 is mind-blowing. But understand that those are just a few of the ways that we appropriate what it is to have the mind of Christ. Listen to this. There's more to Christ than peace, humility, and forbearance. Sometimes having the mind of Christ means that we wage war. Jesus' mind was set on the holiness of God and the zeal for his Father's house when he drove out the money changers. You understand that? Did it diminish his love, compassion, humility, forbearance? No. But you're seeing, you're seeing the other dimensions of God when Jesus drove out the money changers. 
because he has zero tolerance for sin. And in that case, his righteous anger was manifested. Jesus' mind was set on redemptive purposes when he looked at Peter and he said, get behind me, Satan. I mean, I know we jokingly say things like that to friends sometimes. You're the devil. You know, that girl's the devil that you date. And, you know, we, 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 we say things like that sometimes, right? We make light of these things. We trivialize it. We use it as a joke or a catchphrase or a hashtag or something like that. And we try to baptize, baptize that hashtag and make it right, make it good. But, but when Peter heard that from Jesus, it wasn't, oh, hey, you, oh, stop it. Get behind me, Satan. There's nothing worse than he could have called Peter in that moment. But the punishment fit the crime because Peter was standing in the way of the cross. No, you're not going go to not gonna go to the cross. No way. He says, you're missing it, man. If I don't go, you don't go. If I don't go, you don't live. There's no time for joke. There's no time for pleasantries. We're in war. You need to understand this. So Jesus comes at him very, very strongly. Why? Because the mind of Christ was set on redemptive purposes. Sometimes that means that you may have to admonish or be very direct with a brother in Christ. It's hard for us to do sometimes because we want to be loving. It's hard for us to say to this person, you know, hey, where have you been? You know, or, or why, do you, why, do you, why do you talk like that? Why do you make those kind of jokes? You know, if your identity is here, why are you representing something else and falsely representing what you claim? These things are not easy because people pack their toys and go home because people can't handle admonishment. Call them snowflakes, weak, whatever. But the Bible makes it clear that, man, he who receives a rebuke is wise. Especially if it's a godly person coming to someone saying, hey, I love you. But I've seen some things. Let me, let me help you. And if it's right and true, that is a joyous thing. You know? My wife is always taking me and saying, hey, you really dropped the ball here, son. No, I mean, she doesn't do that. Um, you may, yes, that's right. You may have to admonish or be very direct with the brother in Christ. It's not easy for somebody, but sometimes it's necessary. And it's not unloving. It's not unloving, church. I know some of you in here struggle with that. You're compassionate. You're loving. You're gracious. You do anything for anybody. But man, the thought of confronting someone and, and maybe hurting their feelings, it's not unloving. We're at war. And the enemy may not be able to have their soul, but he will definitely vie for their attention. And sometimes a part of war is saying, the mind of Christ means I need to say things to you that are not going to be pleasant to hear, but they'll be good for you. Jesus' mind was set on the beauty and reality and hope of the gospel when he called the Pharisees brood of vipers or sons of damnation. When was the last time you said that to a friend? Son of damnation, you know. I mean, this is this is this is not the way that we talk, you know, all the time. Being a follower of Christ is more than prayer huddles, youth retreats, Christian swag. It's about engaging in warfare for the glory of God and the souls of men. And sometimes that is done with gentleness, with compassion, and sometimes it is very direct. Sometimes it is just calling a spade a spade. I'll share this brief illustration. And I'll, I'll finish. Uh, I'll go through my final, my final few notes. The president emeritus of Mid America Baptist Theological Seminary, where I got my ma- master's, 
He spent 40 years witnessing to this guy. 40 years. <laughs> you know, I, I probably would have been tempted to wipe my dust off my feet after four months, but 40 years. And the last time he witnessed to him, before the guy was regenerated by, by the grace of God, he was so frustrated. The guy was cooking breakfast while he was talking, and he just took an opportunity. And I'm not saying use this as a strategy for evangelism. It just happened and worked. The guy was cooking sausage, and as, as, as Dr. Allison was walking out of the door, he looked, and he says, by the way, you're going to fry like that sausage. <laughs> and I mean, whew, you know, and, uh, and, and, and for some reason, in that moment, God gripped the heart of that man. And he said, let's talk. And that was just a very direct approach. Now, I think to come to someone and, and, and maybe you don't say, hey, let's cook some sausage and uh, use it as a metaphor for your life. You know, I think, I think what we do is we say things like, you're a suppressor of the truth. You're darkened in your understanding. The wrath of God rests on you. Don't, don't fear the one who can kill you, but fear the one who can kill you and cast your soul to hell. I think that's the kind of language that we use. It's not unloving. It's war. And it's love. So we finish with this idea that Peter's saying, what about John? Jesus says, follow me. And all that that I just went through was to encapsulate, I think, what's happening with follow me. This is what this means. It's not half-heartedly, it's wholeheartedly. It's not just my methods, but my ideals. It's not just my ideals, but it's my methods. It's all of these things. It's all encompassing. And the final thing is this, final application. Jesus looks at Peter and he says, hey, I'm telling you these things so that you would know by what kind of death you are going to glorify me. And Peter hears, follow me, and he says, okay, well, what about John? Jesus rebukes him. Hey, <laughs> you, you worry about what I've told you. Don't worry about all these other things. You worry about what I've told you. So I think there's some major teaching points here, one being not to concern yourselves with what, uh, with what others are called to do so much that you lose sight of what you're called to do because all of you are called to do something differently, yet the same. Disciples make, make much of Christ, glory of God, all that stuff. But all of you are given different platforms. All of you are given different contexts. There's only one Joey that's called to be married to Natalie, right? There's only one Matt Brock that's called to be married to Amy. There's only one Shanna that's a teacher to the people that she teaches. You know, there's a unique context for everybody, everybody. And the idea is I've placed you in these contexts because, by the way, God is a brilliant war strategist, and he places you there, and he says, you live and move and have your being there, whether it's in prominence or whether it's in obscurity. And that's an issue that I think a lot of people struggle with, especially pastors. And I'm making somewhat of a generalization because I've talked to a lot of pastors and I've read stuff about this where pastors struggle because here I am in Greenville, South Carolina or Greer, South Carolina, and where someone might say, oh, you only have a few people at your church. You know, uh, some people get very, you know, you know, undone by that. They think that God's not using me because there's only 50, 60 people in this room. You know, they start looking at these other churches, these mega churches where people just seem to come in droves and they start comparing themselves to that, right? Instead of saying, my call is to be here. My call now is Haven Ridge Church. My call is to the people in this room. That's, that's, that's where my call is. Now, in addition to that, I'm to give the word of God. I'm to be intentional and use my life as a platform for the gospel. But my trajectory is unique to me, myself, and I. And your trajectory, your story is unique to you as well. 
So we don't concern ourselves so much with what others have been called to do, but with what we've been called to do. Peter was called to be the rock. And Jesus is saying, you need to stay focused on where we're going. It's one thing to be involved in the lives of others, but it's another thing to be so involved in the lives of others that you forsake or miss what God is expecting out of your life. To follow Jesus is a call to keep the main thing the main thing. Just to keep the main thing the main thing. Don't worry about what others' call is necessary, necessarily, but stay laser-focused on what He's revealed to you. Don't be so concerned with what might be hidden, what might be in secret still, in terms of the hidden will of God, and operate under what the revealed will of God is. Because benign distractions are often the enemy's most destructive weapons of warfare. Peter's focus was distracted by John's future. Jesus tells him, you need to stay in the game. Stay focused. Stay focused, Peter. Don't lose sight. Don't lose vision. Don't lose clarity. It wasn't bad for Peter to care for John. But it is bad when we're so wrapped up in what else is going around us that we lose our focus and our call. And to follow Jesus demands that we stay dialed in to what he's called us to do whether it's a universal calling for all of us to make disciples, to be the church, or if it's a very specific, under-the-microscope calling of what he has you to do in the platform that you've been given. I had a pastor tell me years ago, Alan, you must be content with being a brother. Chris Greer, be content with being a brother. Sometimes even in my mind, because I'm someone that desires the affirmation of men and I'm someone that can have pride issues if I'm not careful not that I have great things to be prideful about but that's the issue is is you know I'm a mess and I had seasons in my life where I would judge God's favor on me or determine God's favor because I'm serving in obscurity where others are serving in prominence And what a ridiculous theology that is. You know how non-impressive the disciples were? How much they hated, they were hated? How much Jesus was hated? Was Jesus not the poster child for someone that would have more relevance to the universe than anyone else, and yet he was stricken, that no one would look upon him and think, wow, there's the king. So we have to stay focused on what God's called us to do, whether it's in prominence or whether it's in obscurity, whether God's calling you to be a part of some movement, or whether you're going to be that man or that woman that no one ever knows except your immediate family and this small little church body. But what we remember of you or what you remember of me is that they followed Jesus. That they they loved Christ, right? Because that's a far better epitaph or a far better story or legacy to leave behind than someone who labored to be the center of this world but did it following his own desires building his own kingdom and glorifying himself. We follow Jesus, we glorify God.
And that's how John ends his gospel. Let's pray. We'll be dismissed. Father, if anyone in this room shares the disposition that I feel now, it's one that is very sober, but very hopeful. It's of conviction while also joy. Conviction that we judge or determine based on a human scale that we've invented ourselves. For myself, Lord, for so many years, determining what success was based on numbers or prominence or invites to preach or whatever. Lord, you know my struggle. You, I've been there. I mean, I've, you know me. But Lord, I, I'm, I'm, I'm encouraged and I'm hopeful as, I, as I've worked through this text knowing that if I'm following you, no matter what the context, is that, that's what matters. And I pray that we could all have that mentality with all of our different platforms, whether it's a stay-home mom who thinks I have no time for other things because I have to be a mom every day, all day. That they might rest in the fact that God is, you are the grand architect, the grand designer, and nothing's arbitrary. And that you've called them to that. That's their platform. That's where they are for this time. And, and maybe during that time that they do it well. They wouldn't look at, at, at what everybody else is doing or what everybody else is achieving. Or but they would, they would grow and they would prosper in a right way in their specific context. And Lord, that applies not just to the mother, but that applies to the... You know, to the, to the business owners in here, Lord, that applies to the laborers in here. That applies to all of us. We're, it's, it's, in this war, you're strategizing, and everyone is so unique. You give us the opportunity to wage war in our following, and I pray that we do it well. And that we do it for your glory and for Jesus' sake. And in his name we pray. Amen. All right, you're dismissed.